Welcome to Eminent Americans, a podcast about the people, platforms, paradigms, and projects and other P-related things that constitute the contemporary American intellectual scene. This is episode three, which I'm dubbing the Big Gay episode. I am your host, Daniel Oppenheimer, a self-anointed intellectual and a self-anointed friend of the gay people. With me today to break it all down are Blake Smith and Jamie Kerchick. Jamie is a columnist for Tablet Magazine, a writer at large for Airmail, and the author of last year's New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Blake is a writer and academic coming off of a postdoc in North Macedonia, which he claims is a place, though I am suspicious. He is now living La Vida Loca as a freelance writer in Chicago, writing for Tablet also, among other places including American Affairs. So Jamie and Blake, thanks for joining me today for the Big Gay episode. Pointedly not the Big Queer episode. Pointedly not the Big Queer episode. I was thinking of calling it the Big Cis Het White Gay episode, but that didn't have the same ring. So I want to start with this, which is I have a working hypothesis that no one has suffered a more dramatic decline in a certain kind of social status in elite progressive circles than white gay men. A decade ago, you guys were hip. You were at the vanguard of social progress coming off of these enormous victories, in particular, the, the full legalization, constitutionalization of gay marriage. And now you're basically indistinguishable from straight white men like me. And I would even say in some circles, you might even be more suspect than me. I mean, you two in particular are more suspect than most of the circles you move in. But my sense is that both of you in different ways are trying to think and write your way through that particular dilemma or challenge or just situation. So what does it mean to be a gay man right now? Maybe particularly a white gay man. What is your relationship to the queer world or or even the concept of queer, the LGBTQIA plus world, the Democratic Party, movements like Black Lives Matter, etc. So I want to get into all of that. But I to start, I wanted to kind of go back a little bit and ask both of you how you came to understand yourselves as gay men, intellectually speaking. So who were the writers, the texts, the events, the movies, whatever, that helped us sort of uh, intellectual identity, political identity as a gay man coalesce for you when you were, you know, I don't know, in your teens, your 20s, at whatever point it hit you. My suspicion is it's going to be different answers for both of you, because I think you guys are operating in sort of related but distinct traditions. But I'm curious what it is. So whoever has something to say, go for it. Well, I'm, I'm also, I think, a bit older. I'm, I'm 39. And so I came out at Yale my freshman year, which would have been around 2002, 2003. And I think I was heavily influenced by two people. And it's going to sound funny because they're on opposite sides politically. One was Larry Kramer, who I got to know and who sort of had a real presence at Yale. And he, was, he was very much, I mean, he was a Yale alum, there was a big controversy at the time because his brother had endowed a gay studies program, which was being sort of hijacked and turned into a queer studies program. And, and Larry was very upset about this at the time and was raising all sorts of hell about it in the way that only Larry Kramer could do. And he's very much identified as a man of the left politically. But interestingly, now I think he would be considered a right-wing reactionary by a lot of people in the in the queer LGBTQ community. And give give me Larry Kramer was that was he kind of active Larry Kramer founded Larry, Gay Larry Men's Kramer? Health Crisis, which is the first okay. AIDS organization. Grassroots was founded in his apartment living room 
in Washington Square Park. He wrote the pioneering novel Faggots, which came out in 1978 and was a very kind of picaresque, parodic take on gay male hedonism in the in the 70s. And it was really sort of a, an eerie precursor to AIDS and sort of the critiques that he would make of, of, of the gay community, basically telling gay men to kind of, you know, frankly, keep it in their, in their pants once it became clear that this was a sexually transmitted disease. But he was a real, I mean, he, you know, he, he accused Ronald Reagan of being Hitler. I mean, he was, he was very, he founded ACT UP later in, in the 80s after getting kicked out of gay men's health crisis. He was a playwright. He wrote The Normal Heart, which was really the first major AIDS play. And I got to know him when I was at Yale because I was writing for, this, for the Yale Daily News about some of these trends. And I took a class in the writing of biography and I wrote my paper about Larry. He had, he had donated his papers to Yale. And so he was a major influence. Andrew Sullivan was, was another major influence. And I, I got to know Andrew also when I was at Yale and you know, came from a very different political tradition than Larry did, obviously, kind of you know Tory, Thatcherite, however you want to describe Andrew. But very openly gay, right? And was really one of the first openly gay journalists in America. And people don't remember this, but in the 1980s, you know, Randy Schiltz at the San Francisco Chronicle was the only openly gay journalist at a major American newspaper, right? And that was in the, and that wow. was in the early to mid-80s. He was covering AIDS. And then you have Andrew, who's at the New Re- Republic magazine in the late 80s, early 90s. There just weren't openly gay people in, in these high-profile media positions. And so Andrew and Larry... I would say were probably the two major influences on me as a gay person trying to figure out what it meant to be gay in a political, intellectual sense. How old are you, Blake? Uh, 35, 35. So not that much younger. I mean, Larry, Larry Kramer is guy. I've, I've been dreaming of writing something about him for Tablet. I reread Faggots recently. And I tried to read it in college, but the narrator, who is clearly Larry Kramer, is like yeah. too insufferable to stay with. Um, <laughs> but... If, if you accept it as kind of like the gay Portnoy's complaint where like, you know, he's figured out a way to make his personal insufferability funny by turning it up like 10 percent. And then it's a very Jewish novel. And there's a there's a very funny kind of stereotypical New York Jewish father who is searching for his son who has faked his own death on Fire Island. And then in the penultimate scene catches up with the son and is like wrestling with him in a sort of love and anger and wanting to, you know, bring him back to New York. And this group of guys start masturbating around them, thinking they're doing like erotic wrestling. And the father sees them all coming around in leather and thinks they're Nazis. And so there's this great internal monologue. And then, you know, as, as, as somehow like would be incorporated into the, the essay, Larry Kramer wrote the Oscar nominated, but actually really terrible script for Women in Love, this 1969 adaptation of uh, the D.H. Lawrence, which in the middle has this two or three minute long nude male wrestling scene, which is in the novel, but there's something to be written there that this, there's actually a kind of like deep but horny family love that the novel is really about. But anyway, you can probably tell from my written work that my big intellectual influence is uh, Foucault, and more recently, I've been been working on Bart. But and this this is also what I'm about to say is perhaps like my greater tolerance for like taking up queer stuff. For me, like what the, the kind of figures who, when I was a teenager, made me think that it would be possible to like live as an adult gay man were like Woody Allen, like watching Woody Allen movies and thinking you could be 
kind of weird and dicky and not masculine, but transform that into a certain kind of cultural success, but also in the movies, like you could be seductive to people that you want to have sex with. And, you know, growing up like Southern Baptist in a suburb of Memphis, these were not human types who existed in my world, right? So, so the idea that you could become someone like Woody Allen was more of a kind of like queer distance and, and a project of self-transformation. You might, you might as well be gay. The distance between that and, and gay is much less between like, you know, the, the sort of person I was supposed to be in my milieu and Woody Allen. But then right in college, I was reading Foucault and Marx and, you know, was sort of a normal grad student left person for most of the 2010s. So let me ask this of both of you as well, which is, which is a related question. When, if, if ever, did you guys feel like you started coming into some kind of intellectual writerly community with other gay men? Where you kind of shared some of the same reference points and some of the same objectives in terms of defining what it meant to be gay, what it meant to be gay in America, et cetera? <clears throat> well, it was, it was at Yale, I think. I was writing for the, for the student newspaper, and I sort of came to the attention of people like Andrew, also Jonathan Rausch and Bruce Bauer and, you know, people who were gathered around this set of essays that had come out in the 90s called Beyond Queer. And they were centrist, classical, liberal, some conservative gay writers who were basically taking on the assimilationist mantle. I mean, if you could say that there were basically two strains in kind of gay political writing and thought, it's the liberationist versus the assimilationist model. I and mean, they've always been in tension with one another, really dating back to before Stonewall. The assimilationist model begins earlier in the 50s, right, with the Mattachine Society, which is the first real gay civil rights organization, and it's modeling itself on the African-American civil rights movement. And then you get the, the liberationist model, which is much more politically radical. It's trying to transcend bourgeois society. It wants no part in kind of mainstream, quote-unquote, society. And so I came into contact with a lot of these older gay writers when I was really young, I mean, in my 20s or late teens even. And I kind of took that on. So a lot of what I was writing about was arguing for gay marriage, quality, gays in the military, all those battles that were being fought, but also arguing against what I saw as the excesses of the kind of queer left, which I've always believed that I was speaking for the quiet majority of gay people on these issues. And it, it hasn't always been easy. Let's just put it that way. I guess what I'm hearing from you, Jamie, is there was a sort of loosely connected, I'm not even sure it's fair to call it a network. There was a loosely connected group of writers who sort of knew each other and to some extent were in conversation with each other and maybe once in a while hung out with each other. But to go over to you, Blake, you wrote in this recent piece about Hannah Arendt and one of her sort of disciples in America, and then the kind of odd role that she played in the creation of a sort of coherent gay culture. In America, you talked about the magazine Christopher Street. That was one iteration of this strain that Jamie talked about of, of in some sense, more assimilationist-oriented gay writers. Um, but, I'm, but I'm interested both in that, but also kind of what world you came up in, because what I imagine a sort of, some sort of confederation of grad students who kind of studied some of the same things that you did, studied Foucault, studied Butler, studied Sedgwick, who kind of all know each other. So, I mean, to the Christopher Street point, I think they stopped publishing 
in the 90s. And in a way, it was good that they did because their their head editor, editor-in-chief, Charles Ortlib, for the last several years was just completely insane with AIDS denialism. So, somehow survived AIDS and now is like still writing books about how COVID is fake. I did not try to contact him for the piece. And I just want to say one word about, you know, part of what Michael Denny, this student of Arendt at Chicago who founds Christopher Street, part of what he is trying to do in those first years at Christopher Street and what I think Arendt's work makes possible is challenging the way that we often set up a binary of assimilationist versus radical. So it's often the case that people on various kinds of lefts want to say that what they're doing in regard to their sort of politics around gay men or women or black people or whatever minority they might be interested in having an alliance with or co-opting, they'll say that their politics in regard to this issue is radical insofar as it aims at like overthrowing our whole society, right? Which can be imagined as founded on capitalism or cis-heteropatriarchy or whatever. But the, the sort of line that a certain left, like with a capital L, might make to a minority group is to say, your oppression is kind of epiphenomenal. And if you want to solve it, we have to overturn everything. And this is, a, I think, of actually not being radical and in, in a sense, assimilating the interest of this group to the interest of like a revolutionary left. And this is something that comes up, like this has long been an issue that various minority groups have had with various lefts. If you read Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, like this is his big issue with Marxism, that when Marxists come around to talk to black people in majority white countries, or when they want to talk about anti-colonialism, it's saying, well, we need to engage with anti-racism, anti-colonialism as a stage toward the total proletarian revolution. You guys are a vehicle for our interest. And who wants to be that, right? So one, Denny has a, an essay where he says, like, what would really be radical is having a politics that is our own, founded on our own sense of ourself, our own interest, and then, you know, making alliances with other people on a kind of tactical basis in terms of what makes sense for us, but not subsuming our self-understanding and the trajectory of our whole politics towards some other ideology. And even when we talk about this or that person, are they radical? Are they assimilationist? If I have like an apparently white picket fence monogamous relationship with my gay male partner, I mean, one, in a lot of ways, that still is extremely historically novel. Uh, it's very recent that that has become possible. And then for all kinds of people from various rights and lefts, this is an object of hostility, right? So, I mean, if we think of what's queer as what seems excessive, what seems grotesque, what invites moral opprobrium, the way people reacted to um, one uh, Buttigieg and Chastain white picket fence photo a few years ago, where there's like the two of them, and then the even more like over the top, the two of them in bed as if they have both given birth to this baby. That's actually deeply queer. I don't know if they knew what they were doing, but it was really insane. And, and they're, they're often held up as the most assimilationist. They're also, they're, they're also attacked by the right for being a threat. And, and, of course. And, right. yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, that they, they managed yeah. to light up a lot, of, a lot of hatred. And there is something quite strange and uncanny about them, actually. In part because Chastity was so ugly. His name sounds like Chastity. It's not clear what they're doing in bed together. They provoke a lot of fascination. I mean, for me, no. So, I mean, I, I am not, I'm not like a professional theory person. Yeah. So I, I've always had a certain 
interest in that stuff. None of my published academic work deals with that. I did my PhD in history at Northwestern, which is then NYU were kind of the big centers of performance studies, which mm-hmm. is sort of the most over the top people using capital T theory to study themselves. So a lot of people work on queer nightlife or do an autoethnography of their own drag shows. And the cohort of friends I had there, we would make fun of these really you know, self-indulgent people who were just studying themselves and their friends. And I think we had a certain kind of academic snobbism where we are going to other countries, we're learning other languages, we're doing something historical. We are not just describing ourselves, but also a kind of fascination that like someone is getting away with that, that someone is able to do this. So I'm glad that all that shit exists. And, and I like thinking about it. I like reading what comes out on Duke University Press. And it, it always makes me sad when like, the National Institute, National Association of Scholars, you know, they're like trying to defend free speech, but every other tweet is dumping on weird X studies is publishing on Duke. And I, I think that's really regrettable. Like, I'm, I'm glad there are these animals in the zoo. And part of what I've been trying to do in Tablet in the last couple of years is both to increase my own familiarity with this stuff and to see what's the internal complexity in it that might make it a sort of resource for resisting some of the things that are being done in the name of these ideas, you know, in the name of my community. How would you self-identify then? You're saying the theory thing, I was kind of misreading you as a theory guy, because what I've been reading of you is the tablet stuff, where it is you engaging in a sort of postdoctoral way with a lot of the theory that's definitive of that tradition. How did you, how do you sort of self-identify within this larger matrix of the gay male world. Because as you said, it's not opposite of radical. It's not the assimilationist sort of conservative status quo, if that even exists as a gay tradition, which you are sort of questioning. But I I assume you have some way of constructing it. Right. Surely my resistance to self-identification. I mean, when you you had me on the other day and, you know, I, I think you wanted more of a, like my trajectory coming out story. And I have a kind of, I think both intellectual and personal resistance to this. I mean, one of the things about like the gay community I mean, maybe all communities have this shape, is the way in which you are really living and orienting yourself toward it, I mean, depends a lot from person to person. So I don't think of myself as have ever been, having ever been in like a gay intellectual network. I mean, my, my partner for many years, like in college and grad school, is a philosopher, a current partner, is also an academic I'm like thinking some of the time with like the gay people that I live with or the gay guys that I'm reading, I have a certain like sort of just personal commitment to be reading and thinking about gay stuff. But like my my grad school, for instance, I mean, history is not a not a particularly like queer or like theoretically trendy discipline. The sort I mean, there were there were no gay people on my committee. I was working on, you know, 18th century French orientalism and trade with India, you know, like, no, yeah. I don't think about that as really having a big influence in my work. So let me bring us up to the present a little bit, because I started this with a sort of hypothesis that there's been a pretty dramatic transition. And I called it the status. I'm not sure that's the right word, but the status of white gay men in the larger kind of left liberal ecosystem over the last 10 years, I guess, for both of you, maybe start with you, Jamie. Do you buy that hypothesis and and how do you explain it? I definitely think it's true. And it's what makes it so dramatic is that by 2015, when gay marriage was legalized, you could say that there was no group that had witnessed a more dramatic increase 
in its status than gay people in general, but also gay white men, right? I mean, my book tells this story. I mean, there was no group really that was more despised in this country than gay men, okay? Not lesbians, gay men, for a variety of reasons having to do with the sex that they had. I mean, in the 1980s, gay men were basically lepers. That was basically how they were treated by our society. And then what happens is you get basically equality, legal equality, access to the military, a very important institution, and access to marriage, another very important institution. And almost overnight, I mean, really almost overnight, gay men become, gay white men become almost an enemy. I can recall shortly after that being in kind of gay spaces, gay organizations, you know, the nonprofit groups, the activist organizations, reading the gay press on social media and just seeing the way that gay white man and then within a year or two, cis white gay men, because cis was a term that was invented also overnight in recent years, that becoming a term of opprobrium When I hear cis now, cis white gay man, it's basically like calling someone a faggot. I mean, that's the purpose that it serves within left-wing intellectual discourse, is you're you're calling someone a faggot, a cis white gay man. And this is because of the kind of hierarchies that the left now has. There are racial hierarchies, and there are inverted hierarchies, right? If you want to say that the right has its own racial hierarchies with white people on top and maybe you know, Asians below and then Hispanics and black, however, however you want to sort it out. The left has its own hierarchies based on race, based on gender, and I would also say religion, right? And Jews are at the bottom of that hierarchy as well. Jews are also seen as being white, quote unquote, and white being evil, bad, wrong. So it's, you know, I don't like victimization. I don't want to be seen as a victim. I don't look back in fondness to the, to the period when gay, when gay men were, were pitied upon or they were given this sort of moral weight because of the suffering that they had to endure. What I don't like is the way that it's now become another means of demonizing a group. That's what I really don't like. So when, when g- gay men were useful to the left, when they could be used as this vector of attack on capitalist patriarchy, right? When they were dying of AIDS by the thousands, they were, they were useful instruments. They were pitiable figures. But now that's not the case anymore. I mean, AIDS is now a manageable condition. Gay men, yep. are, white gay men, I think, are probably economically and socially higher than the average American. Those conditions don't pertain anymore. And therefore, in in left-wing discourse, gay men are now viewed suspiciously. And there's another aspect of this, which I think Blake has touched upon in his writing, and I'm interested in what he thinks. Gay male sexuality now is becoming a problem because it's one, it has no use for women. It's an all-male sexual world. And also, gay male sexuality is, it's male sexuality unhindered by women, right? So, So it's more aggressive. It's like, you know, Al Pacino and cruising. It's that, right? And that threatens, that threatens this left, which is very feminized now. And the kind of discourse around Me Too and consent and affirmative consent, all these codes that straight people now have to abide by, they don't appeal to gay men. If I had to count the number of times I've been, you know, groped at a gay bar... I'd be a very rich man, right? If you give me a dime every time that happens. And most gay men can say the same thing. And we kind of shrug it off. 
And, and I'm not saying that those rules, that the gay male sexual rules should apply to straight people. They shouldn't. Because, because there's a power di differential between men and women that, for lots of reasons, doesn't exist in the same way that it does among gay men. And so we need difference. We need pluralism. We need to respect these differences that exist in our sexual worlds, if you will. I think this is one reason why it's interesting to go back to the 70s. I mean, I've, I've really just started with this identity essay. I don't know what like the, the next step might be, but a lot of the debates that are appearing now that AIDS no longer has this kind of genocidal dimension were already appearing before 81. In these gay publications in the 70s, there are a lot of debates about what's the relationship between gay men and women's movement, gay men and feminism. And a lot of the left-coded publications want to kind of align gay men with a feminist sexual ethic and see gay male sexuality as this problematic site of investment in masculinity, right? That needs to be kind of expunged. And I think, yeah, in some ways we're seeing a return to that. I mean, there's this funny thing where in the same way that spaces for lesbians or for women have pretty much been opened up to people who identify as that, we're increasingly seeing this with gay men. I'm, I'm not a bathhouse person, but you can see all the bathhouses now have like if you identify as a man, you know, you are welcome to come, although people might stare at you, where like the sort of rules of the sexual ethic are being rewritten as people who are socialized as women are participating in it. I would also say, I think part of the utility of, of looking at queer theory might be that the emergence of a pejorative of like cis white gay man, that emerged in like queer theoretical debates well before like it became part of general woke discourse. So I think this is one of the things where there was a pipeline from the theory to Tumblr and Twitter. So if you look at like Yasbir Puar's terrorist assemblages, her critique of what she calls homonationalism, if you look at Jose Esteban Munoz, so they're explicitly calling the strain of queer theory that they're opposed to, written by people like Leo Bersani, Lee Edelman, who I'm, I'm sure their Jewishness is not entirely coincidental, they refer to this as a white male gay. The white, the male, the cis, like the gay, like they all sort of function as similar kind of pejoratives. In, in your email to us already, Dan, you mentioned the possibility of thinking about, you know, like the parallels with, you know, Jewishness. It's not a coincidence, yeah, surely that we're writing for Tablet. And I think part of it is in the 60s and 70s, urban intellectual progressive Jews seem to have experienced a similar kind of dizzying moment where, oh, it turns out we're white and you hate us? Like, what? No, 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 the Holocaust. No, we're victims. No. This produces a lot of like the, the turn to neoconservatism. And I think in the way that, you know, so John Pastelli has a review of Wesley Yang's Souls of Yellow Folk, where he talks about the sort of people who are getting enrolled in neo-neoconservatism. And it makes sense that, you know, straight Asian guy, white gay guy, are people who might have the same kind of like affective intellectual position as like a Jew who is about to become a neoconservative in 1970, right? Yeah. This this sort of, it's hard to know what word to use because you hesitated on status because, right, it's as though like, yeah, legally and in a lot of ways, culturally, things are much better, but you're demoted in the stack, right? You're no longer the right kind of victim. And yeah, I think as Jamie says, like there's a sort of maybe... You could think of it in kind of Nietzschean terms. We're no longer available for the, the benevolent pity 
so on the one hand, I want to be attuned to the ways in which that can be a politically destructive, you know, white gay men are, are the faggots of the left wing world or something like that in a bad way that we would all agree is bad. But also just these sort of normal kind of evolutions and shifts in who's up and who's down in a non-pejorative sense, which is, let me give this, this is the example I always come back to, which is like the elite publications like the New York Times, the New Yorker, the New Yorker Review of Books, they always have their marquee writers. They're real true talents, right? They're top 1% or 0.01% talents. And those people are always going to thrive. Those people, those, those people, even if they're white and straight and come from Ivy Leagues today, are going to thrive because they're truly sort of exceptional. But the bulk of the writing in those places is just, I think of it as filler. It's somebody who can operate at a high level of professionalism, but doesn't actually have anything that interesting to stay or whose style is not particularly interesting, right? You can sub in one of 200 other people into that space. And there was a long time when our people were the filler, right? Our people were those sort of filler at the New Yorker, the New York Review of Books, the New York Times op-ed page, right? If you needed some generic high level of professionalism, progressive writing, it was going to be somebody who was white. It was disproportionately going to be somebody who was Jewish. It was even more disproportionately somebody who went to an Ivy League university or something like that. We have lost access to that spot. And I don't think there's an injustice to that. There's a lot of roles of sort of high level of professional mediocrity that were once kind of handed on a silver platter to people who looked like us in some ways that are now not handed to us. And, you know, you brought up Blake, you know, this realization of Jews in the 60s that suddenly we were the enemy. But it's also the case that we had a much longer grace period when we were sort of hip in the sort of progressive intellectual spaces. When it was a little bit cool to be Jewish, we were the sort of, a, you know, a desirable minority and we had access to a lot of cultural goods by virtue of that. And we had a good long run, I would say. You guys did not have a good long run. I mean, that's part of what I'm talking about, which is the sort of rapid diminishment in status, which is you had a very short run when you were hip. And I wonder for, for, for both of you, if you experience it in the way that I'm experiencing it, where there's a certain kind of, I don't want to say a justice to it, but at least not an injustice to it. It's a shifting in the sort of who has access to this kind of median spaces in elite culture. Right. Maybe this is, I'm much more provincial than either yeah. of you. Well, right. I mean, I, I think I have a sort of like, provincial and maybe distinctly Southern kind of hostility to, you know, we did not get the New York Times, the New York Review of Books in my house. These, these to me are sort of like the devil's publications. And it, it seems like very fitting to like not appear in them and to be in some way working against them. I take like the queerness of gay male specificity as a kind of resource. I, I think there is something that I find really like, you know, interesting in this whole kind of tradition from you know, Foucault and Bersani and Edelman, Tim Dean, who has written interestingly against Me Too recently. And yeah, I think, you know, like this isn't, of course, true for everyone, but I, I do take it up that there's something inherently transgressive about being a sexual minority and translating that into intellectual work seems both fitting and exciting. The fallen elite that I might belong to you know, lost Pickett's charge, you know, in 1863. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not so concerned about 2015. It's like the moment when, you know, I could have been a contender. Are you concerned in a more personal way? So I think, for Jamie, and you can nuance this or correct it. I think part of what I heard you saying, Jamie, is there's a political project you're engaged in and concerned about, and then there's a personal project. So the political project being one of not denigrating those who very, very recently were reviled 
you know, gay men, but also a personal project of like the specific, and yeah, you live in DC, yeah. is that right? Are you, yeah. You know, the personal project, and I've had this experience living in Austin, the personal project of just going into spaces where, you know, political spaces, social spaces, like you mentioned, bathhouses, but going into spaces that were once very hospitable in all sorts of ways or, or even in, entirely oriented around gay male specificity and finding hostility where once there was hospitability. And, and I'm curious, is that an accurate characterization kind of at a personal level, Jamie, of what you're experiencing? Are you feeling well, I can just say personally, there is a lot of suspicion in certainly LGBTQ spaces and increasingly beyond, with any sort of work that has to do with, with gay men. I mean, look, my book was very well received. I mean, you mentioned it was a New York Times bestseller. The most negative reactions came from the gay press, or I should say the LGBTQIA plus press, right? Because it was, about, it was about gay white men. And it's like, I'm sorry, you know, I wrote a book about political power in Cold War Washington. It was white men. That's who I'm writing about. That's who I chose to write about. But there's a sort of suspicion and hostility to that. You open up the pages of The Advocate or Out Magazine, and it's very difficult that you're going to see a gay white man. They're writing about other communities and other groups of people. And, you know, there's, there's one part of me that understands that. I mean, I guess, you know, the gay white men, they had their time, right? They basically were at the forefront of the discourse for decades. But again, I don't think that the reaction should be an overreaction in the opposite direction. And I feel that way about the whole cultural shift that we've been going through. The, the, the proper response to centuries of you know, white male oppression is not to make it so that every MacArthur Genius Grant recipient is a non-white woman or something. I mean, it seems that everywhere you look now across these elite spaces, it's an overreaction in the opposite direction. It's, you know, overt discrimination now against certain groups. And I know I'm going to be assailed for, you know, whining as a, as a white man, but I don't believe in discrimination, period. You know, I'm, I'm an old school yeah. liberal in that sense. I don't think people should be discriminated against because of their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, their gender identity. But it seems that the, the ascendant left, which is now in control of all these institutions, is pretty actively discriminating against s certain groups. That just seems to me inarguable at this point. Blake, at the personal level, do you experience a sort of shift in how you're, you're perceived of as a gay man in, in spaces that matter to you, I guess, whatever those are? On many levels, there are these weird sorts of disconnects in like kind of hyper-politicized lives where like, I agree with you know, everything Jamie has just said. Part of why I was wanting to write about identity on Christopher Street is like their ambition was to kind of have a gay male New Yorker. And you really can't do that now. There's the Gay and Lesbian Review, which is a bunch of very old people. I'm glad that it exists, but it's not, it's not cool. The line of like white gay male theory is pretty much dying out. Those guys are all quite old and are not being replaced. Sort of what we have instead is Andrea Longchu, or we have like, you know, straight women who are doing queer theory. But yeah, I, I regret that. And, you know, recently, like I'm thinking more in my writing about, yeah, like what are the possibilities for non-academic cultural spaces where we can be doing this? Like, I think the 
the project from the 70s and 80s where, like a lot of other groups, like Asian Americans, Black people, in some ways the, the women's movement, gay men tried to have like gay studies, tried to have like a both like publishing outside of academia and para-academic intellectual spaces and spaces within academia. And in much the way that women's stuff became gender stuff in the 90s, gay stuff has also become queer and gender which has meant that in a lot of ways it's been taken over by progressive straight people. And I think that's really regrettable. But but personally, I don't encounter, like, yep. you know, I mean, the, the gay space that I go to is like my Episcopal church and, and like my house. It's true that it exists at a certain level, but if you were just reading the media, you would think that this is like what people's lives are like. And, right. So I want to see if I can sort of push back on what, I perceive of as a slight evasion there. I want to quote something from your Arendt piece. The task, which is explicit in Arendt's Zionist writing, but only implicit in her later work, is one of more fully and expansively elaborating the world we already share with those with whom we are by virtue of historical circumstances, but perhaps not yet by virtue of our own conscious concern in community, a world that is sustained by and maintains the possibility of the exchange of different perspectives on what interlocutors understand as being the same object, albeit in a not yet fully agreed upon way. And so, so let me just kind of bring that down to earth a little bit. Yes, most of us live in a normie world. Like most of the people I'm mixing with on a regular basis, they don't even know who 98% of these fucking people are, right? And, and even if you're at the Episcopal Church, amongst mostly gay parishioners and priests. They don't fucking know either, right? Like this is- the, It's very relaxing. This is, yeah. right, right, like yeah. this is the preserve of a very small slice of people. That said, it is who we are. And I think part of what you were saying in the Arendt piece was, if this is the thing that defines who you are and what your values are and how you constitute your identity, it's important. It's important to feel like you have a sense of community with other people around some common identity, some common set of ideas. And so I would sort of, and you can push back on this, but from your writing, I can't imagine that it's unimportant to you that there be a world in which there's some community of people who share some sort of common view of the world or reference points or political perspectives or understanding on what it means to be gay. And that's well, a personal space, even though it's also a kind of intellectual and political space. The model of identity that I wouldn't want to have is one where we agree ahead of time what it means to be a gay man, what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be whatever. I think yeah, precisely the Arentian concept of world is we're going to share our perspectives on some common thing, but they're different perspectives, right? So what I like about, you know, Christopher Street, what I think is, what I think it's good about any like proper kind of magazine or proper kind of intellectual forum is in some way we agree that we are already in community. We want to talk to each other, but what we're going to do is disagree, right? We're going to disagree about some topic that is of interest to all of us, right? You know, we agree that how gay men are having sex, like matters to us, right? So we're gonna, like promiscuity for against, you know. That feels under threat to me. So I guess that's what, and I don't want to project yeah, it so onto you. No, that, that, that is what's under threat, that doesn't exist anymore. Like, that, I mean, in some ways we're back to a sort of like pre-70s, lots of people are living an objectively gay life and they go to vacation on Fire Island, you know, they, you know, they have their partners and now they have legal protection for it. But that there is a space that is particularly for us where we can address each other and disagree with each other and exclude people who obviously don't belong. So, right, you know, you want a space where you can disagree with people 
who are disagreeing about the same thing that you are right and who are part of you and yeah we we no longer have that and i think that's that's really it's like an immeasurable tragedy right yeah. it's like very hard to get a, like it, it's easy to to sort of identify many specific abuses or the sort of decline of membership in elite institutions tablet loves to worry about how many jews how many asians that are at harvard I, I i don't care about that but that we don't have a thing of our own anymore yeah that it's really it's very very bad Jamie, do you, you've always been in some sense a man alone. And I'm wondering, do you feel more alienated from, you know, let's, let's say the queer world or the gay world now than, than you, you did say 10 or 15 years ago, or, or is it more, I mean, you're just a, and I don't mean this at all in a pejorative sense. You're just, you're, you're a guy who's always kind of walked his own path and sort of refused to, to come into alignment with a lot of expectations about what it should mean for you to be well, a gay it's, man in America. It's strange because, yes, I absolutely feel more alienated from whatever you want to call this LGBTQIA plus monstrosity. But what's interesting is, is that most of the gay people I talk to feel alienated too. It's like a whisper network that we all have because no, very few people are courageous enough to speak out against it. And I'm including myself in that category. There are lots of things that, lots of debates that I'm not engaging in. At least not yet. So there's an implicit threat there. I, I might. I might soon. <laughs> no, but I have these conversations all the time with gay men, with gay women. In a way, it's funny. Because there's this, you know, there's this lie that, well, not lie, but there's this, there's, this, there's this impression that gay men and lesbians are part of the same community. That's never really been true. There's always been a lot of outright hostility between the two of them. And there's a lot of differences, to put it lightly. But now I find there's this kind of quiet, increasing bonds growing between gay men and lesbians over, over our feeling of estrangement from what the official kind of queer space is becoming. Uh, so I actually feel more a part of a community, even if it's a kind of secret one, a pre-Stonewall one, as Blake was saying earlier, where the kind of official organs, the official organs and the official spokespersons of this community are very alienating to a large number, a large and growing number of gay civilians, if you will, right? People who are not involved in this world professionally. They're just kind of normal normies, you know, gay normies who feel, who feel estranged. And I count myself a part of that group. I'm sure you have similar experiences, but yeah, I, I you know, regularly get what are nice but also frustrating messages from people, whether they're in academic or academic administrative positions, where you would think from their biographies or titles that they're super on board with the woke thing, or people who are in the kind of left journalism and writing world, where they say something like, you know, between the two yeah. of us, I am I am very frustrated. And like, I secretly agree with you, but I wouldn't say it. Yeah, And that's heartening but also awful i, I mean I, I sometimes wonder like how much anyone is on board with this but to go back to the true thing i mean i think if you were to like poll even trans intellectuals or trans writers like i don't think most of them feel like this is not a person who had been elected to be the voice of this community this is a particular example but there's you know in berlin like the schwulis museum so like you know fag museum which a few years ago was kind of taken over by a sort of gender goblin assemblage and all the old gay men were driven out. And this has happened, you know, mutatis mutandis at every such institution. 
And I guess the trouble is to to defend them, to defend like their specificity, you have to be a really Larry Kramer, a Larry Kramer. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We need a million Larry Kramers. An asshole with an enormous amount of confidence in As one. sad as I am that Larry is no longer with us, in a way it's probably for his own good that he's not seeing that he's not seeing what's what's become of this well, right. I, he already had that tragedy of today. But that was over that that that, was, that he came out with when I was at Yale, and that was different. That was he wrote this speech that was a typical Larry Kramer speech. He was basically hectoring gay the gay community for not being political enough and standing up for itself. And this was before gay marriage. It was before gays in the military, right? So there had, but now his 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 fire would have been directed in, in a completely different direction. I mean, I don't think he would be as upset about Donald Trump and the right. I think, he, I think he really would be upset about what's happening with this queerness. I mean, queer was never a word I, I heard Larry use. Never. Because, you know, people like him, that was the last word that they heard before they got their head bashed in. That was the word that was used to, to traumatize and terrorize gay people. So, yeah, I mean, in some sense, I, I wish Larry were still here. But on, on the other hand, I think it was probably for the best that he's not seeing what's what's going on. I mean, this is really interesting, you guys talking about kind of getting these sort of sub rosa messages from other people, because you guys are both out there in, in varying degrees writing about these things that, as you say, I think a lot of people, you know, in the sort of gay male community, to the extent that there is one, but a lot of gay men are, are experiencing, but are, but are not willing to come out and say publicly they don't have the same the same role in the world that you guys do or the same profession, you know, whatever one feels about that, I think it is interesting to consider it as a political fact, because I think one of the things, I mean, I wrote a book about people who went from the left to the right of the political spectrum, right? So I, I, I'm reading up on periods in American history, you know, 1930s when communism was big, the 1960s with the new left, when certain left-wing notions, orthodoxies, ideologies were ascendant, and and then at the same time, there was sort of a, a brewing counterreaction from people who were coming from within those spaces. And so one of my sort of parlor games is to kind of predict who that's going to come from, you know, in terms of specific people, who's going to who's going to turn right, but also particular populations of people who are going to turn right or are going to have some kind of political reaction. And I guess my instinct right now very strongly is that gay men and particularly white gay men is a population that is ripe for that kind of transition because of this experience, you know, and I was describing it as a loss of status, but however you want to describe it, it's a dislocation from the role that they occupied in the culture and in progressive spaces, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. And I guess my project, and, and I suspect Blake, but maybe not yours, Jamie's, is, is to not see those people as the sort of neo-neocons, to not see them become that, to not see a real reaction over to the right, but to see if there's some way to sort of redirect that, you know, back into the mainstream of kind of left liberal politics in a way that I kind of imagine would be more constructive to kind of the health of the polity than, than, a, than a conservative perspective. But that's because well, I'm I'll a left liberal. Two things. One, you've already seen that transformation happen in France, where gay men are increasingly voting for Le Pen because, of, oh, yeah, oh, because, that. because of the issue of yeah. Muslim Im immigration where you have a large immigrant right. community of people from a certain religious tradition that, let's just say, is not so welcoming or accepting of homosexuality. And you've seen this in France and in other Western European countries, where increasing numbers of 
gay people, gay men are voting for not just conservative parties, but right-wing parties, right-wing nationalist parties. Second, I would say my political project, if there is one in this sense, is to make it so that your sexual orientation does not dictate your politics. That's my goal. I, I aspire to a world or a country where you know, gay people do not feel as if their sexual orientation mandates that they belong to a certain political tribe, okay? where, it's not, where it's not a salient factor in their political disposition. You know, obviously, from the 70s onwards, for most gay people, it was the left, for understandable reasons, that if you were a gay person, that that would be an overriding concern, that you would vote for the Democratic Party. I would like to be in a world where your sexual orientation does not necessarily determine what your politics are. I would like to make sexual orientation a non-issue in American politics. I think, unfortunately, yeah, that one is going to have about as much luck as like solving the Jewish question in the last 200 years, where the, the, the day when one can finally be normal and it will not matter and everyone will leave us alone. You know, I mean, I think one thing that, you know, people in queer theory are thinking about, like this is you know, specifically Lee Edelman, but I think a lot of people like share this notion is that, you know, in any society, there's some groups that are made to kind of figure or bear the representative burden of certain intolerable psychic elements. So, you know, for a long time, you know, gay men kind of figured like sexual abjection and excess and, and were queer in that sense. And now we're, we're sort of queer in, in, in the way like, I mean, white guys in general have become like kind of queer in embodying privilege and embodying historical sin. So, you know, now there are like different kinds of sites of social concern, but they remain available. And in a way, I mean, as long as you exist as a kind of like symbolic entity in that way that other people can be thinking about, you're in danger. After the hyper attacks, you know, there was like a wave of French Jews going to Israel and the prime minister gave a speech where he was, you know, France without Jews is no France. We must defend our Jews. And, but I think being protected in this like spotlighting way, which is how the left used to think about us, is also like an endangerment, right? Or there's a kind of blackmail. We, we will protect you as long as doing so lets us feel certain kinds of things about ourselves, right? You're, you're a sort of a symbolic good in our political project. And, you know, if you belong to a small minority, you sort of can't escape that. Like, you know, you, you, you are going to always be kind of vulnerable to the majority's fantasies about you. I mean, right, I, I, don't, I don't have a... I, like, Dan, you seem to have a, a clearer sense of my political project than I do. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I guess I don't, also don't know what right and left mean mm, in the yeah. U.S. anymore. Like, I, you know, I, I am not in favor of DeSantis or Trump. Right. But, but a right that's more hospitable to gays, even if I'm not on it, or if I'm sort of being paid by it, but choose not to identify with it, great. You know, you know. I, and, and I guess... You know, what I worry about, less that there'll be a reaction amongst gay men towards conservatism than towards some of the like sort of toxic political and identity pathologies that seem rampant on the right and the left right now. I think that would be a tragedy if gay men felt like they were expelled from the left and, and where they ended up was embracing just sort of nasty right-wing pathologies. Hey, oh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're there. I mean, you yeah, know. You're right. And so when I say what the project is, I, I agree with you, Jamie, and I agree with you, Blake, that a healthy space for gay people on the right would be fantastic, too. I'm less concerned about that than 
But a toxic place on the right would not be a good outcome, right? A toxic place on the left or the right would not be a good outcome for those individual people. It wouldn't be a good outcome for our culture, our political culture. Just speaking personally, one of the losses I have experienced is the loss of the sort of gay male intellectual tradition as a resource that I was able to draw on to expand my own sense of who I could be as a man, as a person, as a liberal. I mean, you talked about Andrew Sullivan being a resource for you, Jamie. I mean, he was a resource for me. I mean, reading Andrew closely over many years, that enabled a massive expansion of my own sense of who I was as a man, even though I was a straight man, you know, and my whole experience of gay male culture was, was as one that sort of allowed me to expand my sense of who I could be as a straight man. So the loss for me is not just political spaces, but it's kind of a cultural imagination that feels expansive and open and, and encompassing, thrown over for one, for one that on all sorts of sides seems gets kind of narrowing down who and we can be or what we should be. you feel that you've lost that. It could be more specific. How, how have you lost that? Well, I haven't lost the people who I took it from. What I've lost a little bit is a kind of ongoing living instantiation of that culture. The evolution that I would have wanted, and I realize that sounded selfish, would have been all of these trans writers and artists creating art, doing writing that allowed me to sort of expand my sense of who I was as a human being, as a man, as a father, as a son, as what, whatever, as a liberal, as an American, all of these roles. And I don't see that happening anymore. I also don't see when I look at some of the, the gay writers who were influenced on me. I mean, we talk about Andrew. I mean, Andrew is now just a kind of fighting a rear guard defense. It doesn't feel like there's the same generative source of that kind of thing. And partially why I'm so into your writing, Blake, is because that's, that's a kind of rare bright spot of that, I think. I want people reaching into queer theory, which is something that I'm not particularly familiar with, and translating it into terms where I can see it, see in it sort of potential resources for expansion of our sort of political space. Does that make sense, Jamie? That was a little rambling, but in terms of the loss. Um, yeah, I do. And I think it's, it's because queer has overtaken gay and the trans, I mean, we haven't really talked about the trans stuff, to topic T today. That could be a whole separate podcast. But like I said earlier, I, th I think it's because talking about these things is now seen as almost suspect. You know, if you're not including the TQIA+, then you are exclusive. You're excluding people. Yeah. I think part of the problem, and then again, this is maybe me performing my provincialness to people performing their iviness, but <laughs> a thing that Dinity really was focused on is that, you know, there had been gay male authors like, you know, Gore Vidal or Auden, Isherwood, uh, Tennessee Williams, but there hadn't been a gay male press before the 70s. So there hadn't been a space where they're really writing to each other and trying to nurture their talent. So uh, there was this thing that like Andrew Holleran, Felice Picano, Ed White were part of the Violet Quill Society like in, in the late 70s. And obviously most of them sucked as writers. Like Andrew Holleran's maybe the only one who people will still read in 100 years. I mean, he's, he's genuinely really, really talented. But you need actually, you need spaces for your mediocrities, right? And I think if, if your aspiration is to be both speaking the truth about who you are to people like you and to have the position at the national elite institution. For some people at certain historical moments that will work out for you. And you can be, you can be an Andrew Long Chu now. You're kind of allowed to do a minstrel show where you play a version of your identity on the national stage. But that for us is over. And it maybe was never such a good thing. Jamie, in your essay for Liberties, 
you characterize queer theory in a certain way, and I think you use the term nihilistic. Here's a quote, lacking a normative dimension to its analysis, queer theory is a, at its essence nihilistic. A and I guess one question I have, is it a question of understanding the impact that this thing has had in a certain sort of very political spaces, and in that sense, it's been nihilistic? Or is it your experience that the theory itself is kind of nihilistic at its core in some disqualifying way? Because I think those are two different sort of discursive spaces, and maybe they, they have it has different salience in, in either of them. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not the professional expert in queer theory. This is my layman's take on it. But my problem with this is that it seems, and the impact that it's having, is it's opposing anything that is considered normal. And it's this never-ending struggle to champion the marginal. It can never take yes for an answer. It can never accept acceptance. It's constantly on the lookout for new classes, new groups to champion. And so you see this in the early kind of queer theory writings of Gail Rubin in the 1980s, where she's distressed at the fact that gay white monogamous men are achieving some acceptance by mainstream society. That's something that she's disappointed by. And I think that's now why we see the embrace of the, not, not just trans as an issue, but the most extreme interpretation of transness. Because for whatever, I mean, and, and again, I'm interested to think, hear what Blake thinks about this. There's this element of, of the progressive left that constantly has to be in opposition to mainstream society. It constantly has to be épater les bourgeois, right? Scandalizing the bourgeoisie. And for, you know, for 25 years, for 30 years, gay men served that purpose because their sex was transgressive. And we can now be dispensed with. And now it's acceptance of transgender people is not enough anymore, right? It has to be sex changes for children. That's the new frontier of the left, right? Who knows what it's going to be? in five, 10 years. And this is what worries me because I can see this breeding reactionaries. I wrote a tablet essay about my, I don't know if he's a friend or an ex-friend, Saurabh Amari a year ago, right? Who, you know, this, this was his Kronstadt, right? This was the issue that was drag queen, was drag queen story hour, right? And, but it's, it's gone. To be fair, he, yes, he's converted true. several Multiple, times to different yeah. things. So if not that, of course. it would be... But there are know. lots of people, and again, to go back to these whispered conversations, there are people who are being turned off by this in large numbers. And I'm concerned, is this going to redound on gay people? Is this reaction to this going to hurt gay and lesbian people who have no truck with it, right? But by implication, because of this LGBTQIA acronym, we're all being implicated in this revolution now that's going on in our society. That's what concerns me. I mean, one of the really hard to understand ironies is that this pose of transgression has become the yes, new absolutely. bourgeois etiquette. I, I had this piece in, in Tablet that nobody liked, are conservatives the new queers? And I, But I think it, it's entirely right that the desire to shock the bourgeoisie, the sort of slogans with which one used to do that are now part of a sort of progressive left hegemonic ethic. The queer desire to be transgressive is now yes. effectively on the right in, in ways that one might well object to, but also that I find, you know, sometimes very delicious to practice. I mean, you know, I, I, I do love to be 
transgressive in, in what I write. And I mean, I think in a way that's not dissociated from my biographical experience. There's maybe too short of a time to go into it, but I mean, queer theory is a is a big and multifarious thing that has evolved a lot since the, the early 80s. And that I think, as I try to document in my own work, has a lot of internal debates and resources for resisting the new kind of normativity. I mean, maybe this is also sort of temperamental distinction is that yeah. I, I don't mean this in a in a negative way, but I think Jamie is interested in a certain kind of respectability politics. And in part, like what I dislike about the new like queer normativity is that it is it is the new respectability politics. The new respectability politics is not wearing it's a tie. Putting your pronouns, it's putting your pronouns having, in your you know, Twitter your, profile. No. It's putting your pronouns in your bio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it, I, I think I'm, I'm the sort of person where whatever the regime would be, I would be having a certain kind of problem with it. Any final thoughts? What's going to happen over the next five years in this space? Put on your forecaster hat. Because the thing that popped into my <laughs> head as one of you was talking was what needs to emerge is a new gay magazine with the two of you <laughs> on the masthead and Andrew Sullivan and Jonathan Rauch and me as the uh, token straight. That is the space in which we sort of hash out all of these things and disagree about them, but disagree about them with some sort of kind of fundamental agreement that we're disagreeing about the same thing or something. Right. I mean, like whenever that. Peter Thiel is done murdering his boyfriends for turning 35, he can pony up some money. <laughs> and, and, and I won't mention it again, Peter, if, if, you, if you pay up. <laughs> yeah, from your mouth to God's ears, that would, be, that would be lovely. I mean, I think you will see this shift to the right among gay people. You're already seeing it. The Heritage Foundation a couple of years ago had a panel on sort of the trans threat to feminism. And they had on the panel a number of lesbian feminists. So there's the kind of turf wing, right? But there's a lot yep. of people who would not declare themselves as turfs, but maybe are sympathetic to it. And you said earlier, are there a lot of gay men who may be feeling left out by this woke identity politics? So there will be, I think, a quiet shift to the right. If the right is smart enough to be able, and they're not, that's the thing, they're not smart enough to fully, if DeSantis had been politically smart, and I'm not saying I necessarily would have agreed with this, but the so-called don't say gay bill, if he had just made that about gender identity, right? If he had left out sexual orientation as something that can't be discussed in certain grades, and if he had just made it gender theory, then I don't think he would have inspired the outrage. And I think a lot of the gay people who felt obligated to kind of attack him because sexual orientation was included among the topics you couldn't discuss in, in, in early grades, he could have split the L and the G and the B from the T and the Q, right? So that is, if, if, if the right were smart, they would be doing that, okay? But they're not, so they're not doing it. But I do, but I think that they will get hip to it over in the, in the coming years. I think they will. So that's something that I predict. I'm not necessarily happy about that because I don't want to see the politicization of sexual orientation. I don't want it to, see a politi to be a politicized issue. But that's, that's something that I, that I, that I foresee. Right, just to end on a note of, you know, total pessimism, right? If the right were smart, it would be a great collection of essays. Or you could just gather all the essays that have been written with that thought over the last, you know, generation. And so, right, that means, like, just having articulated that phrase, that means that we're fucked. And then I had an essay on this for the Washington Examiner, you know, about, about Foucault a couple of years ago, but to say that 
unfortunately, like the concept of sexuality was invented in the 19th century for politics. Like it, it exists to be a site where to regulate it, to regulate attitudes about it, to regulate, able to regulate not just practices, but people's souls. We came up with this concept of sexuality and whether the state wants to punish you for being homosexual or for being homophobic, the idea that there is some essence inside you that must be monitored, revealed, corrected, that is politics. So will we ever escape the concept of sexuality? I mean, this is probably not. Well, then I will, I will reframe that in a positive way, in an optimistic way, Blake, which is day in the sun as hipster intellectuals has not passed and you will rise again because there is no escape. Right. May the checks keep coming. That's... Thank you guys so much. This was really great. I really appreciate you indulging me and, and joining me for this. And yeah, hope to talk to you guys soon. Hope we get a good reaction to this when it's out in the world. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This was an episode of Eminent Americans, the podcast. If you liked the podcast, subscribe to it uh, and subscribe to the newsletter of the same name, Eminent Americans, the newsletter. Recommend it to your friends. Rate it on the platform on which you listen to it. Beam good vibes about it out into the universe. Thank you to my producer, Nick Worthen, and thank you to you, my listeners. This is a labor of love for me, and I do genuinely appreciate your attention, particularly if you've gotten all the way here to the end of all things. Feel free to email me with questions, thoughts, observations, even diatribes at djops at gmail.com. That's D as in Daniel, J as in James, ops as in ops or Oppenheimer at gmail.com. Have a great day.